Hey, bitch talkers. This is Aaron. Uh, since we're still in election season, uh, we thought we would rerun the interview we did with Supervisor Jane Kim. So if you are undecided in the San Francisco area and San Mateo, San Mateo County, um, please take a listen to our interview. She's awesome. And we found out that she plays the bass, by the way. Um, and remember to go vote November 8th. Uh, one other thing I wanted to promote was the San Francisco International Hip Hop Dance Fest, which is November 11th through the 13th. We had the founder of that last year, Micaiah, on our podcast. And um, I went to the show last year and it was amazing. There are acts from all over the world, as well as just the Bay Area. And um, I was on my feet by the end of that show. So if you want to find tickets to that, it's sfhiphopdancefest.com. Without further ado, on with the show. Bitch Talkers, how are you? This is a special little episode. It's 138 in the books, I believe. Uh, this has been a long time coming. We have a very special guest in studio, and we're just going into this. Um, we have Supervisor Jane Kim in the house, everybody. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and that's Angela over there yes. to my oh, left. Oh, I thought you were talking about me at No, first. no, you're oh, here all okay. the time. Oh, okay, whatever. Um, anyway, <laughs> on to Jane Kim. On to Jane Kim. But she <laughs> is um, in a very heated Senate race right now. Um, we don't need to talk about the other guy. But uh, I'm very excited about her and have been following the story of her race. And I also voted for her um, a couple months ago. So... It's been a long time coming to have her here, and we really want to push her to uh, get to that finish line in November. So, Jane, thank you so much for being here. Thank yes. you for having me. Yeah. Thank you so much. This is, this is <laughs> not your average politician. We'll just put it out there right now. Yes. And I would beg of you, please, uh, we have a lot to cover, so just try to talk fast so we can cover everything. <laughs> okay. Oh, did you hear her? She's steering right, the yeah. ship right here. <laughs> but, I mean, first things first, we heard that you kind of like lyrics born, so that's why we chose... Uh, the lead-in oh. that we did. So that's a little Bay Area for you. It's a little Lyrics Born as the intro. So um, let's just get down to it. I always like to hear the origin story of all of our guests. So if you want to, you can tell us where you're from, where you were raised, and then how you got here to California. Sure. I was born and raised in New York City and came out here to do my undergrad at Stanford. Um I, I always knew that I wanted to do committee work. I never knew that it would be an actual elected office, <laughs> but I've always been political. Um, since I was 14, mm. I started volunteering at uh, my local coalition for the homeless and uh, did a soup kitchen uh, food run every Saturday night in high school, um, visiting all of our you know parks, under freeway ramps, um, getting to know different communities, and just realizing that this is what I wanted to do. And so when I graduated from school, I moved up to San Francisco, like so many other folks, and started getting involved. Um, eventually worked at Chinatown Community Development Center, where I ran the youth organizing program for six years and was recruited to run for the Board of Education. Go ahead. Okay, so I have a <laughs> lot of questions, like, leading up to that. Like, how do you just 
become that? Like, who was your catalyst in like, I have this civic duty. Mm -hmm. Uh, Who, how did you just, as a teenager, spend your Saturday nights in soup kitchens? Because at 14, that's very self-aware, by the way. Yeah, I'm not going to say what I was doing at 14, but we can imagine. You know, um, when I was 11, I started um, taking the bus, you know, and walking um, to school by myself. And I just remember being 11 and being approached by an older gentleman for money. And I just remember being stunned by that. You know, I was only 11 and um, and there were people that lived on the streets and I just didn't really understand it. And um, at the time, you know, in New York City, race and class um, were big issues. I, they were really hard to avoid, even for young people. And I just started you know, wanting to do something to address it. I don't have a good answer for you. No, that's to be powerful. That one moment when we all, I, I hope that, you know, by a certain age, you have certain moments that kind of shift your mindset yeah. and mm-hmm. kind of rock your world. And you're like, wait a minute. And you think about things differently. You know, another event that was really big for me in high school was the LA riots. Mm-hmm. That, she's, she's from yeah. LA. Yeah. That yeah. is huge for me. Mm-hmm. And um, being Korean American, my mom owned a small business in mm-hmm. New York City. And um, many of my friends were African-American because I grew up in New York City. And I just was, you know, the concept of race really came into your face. And so many of my friends had experienced police brutality growing up in New York City. Hmm. And for it to come to the forefront with that video, that homemade video... Mm -hmm. Right. That was the back beginning. when nobody had cell phones. Right. That was, that, that was not phone. a. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. It was in some ways revolutionary. And then to get the verdict handed down mm-hmm. where all of the officers were acquitted after such an obvious display of violence. Right. Um, against a black man in L.A. was startling. And then to see the anger and frustration and the Korean American community kind of being in the midst of all of that. Oh, in LA, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's so prevalent. It's so so strong the community in LA. Yeah. Yeah. And so part of that also raised my consciousness and I I don't know. I I just I've always known that this is what I want to do. Wow. <laughs> I know. I'm still trying to figure it out. <laughs> yeah, at 14. That's incredible. Well, another thing that you did as a as a teenager in high school was you stopped reciting the pledge of allegiance. Mm-hmm. And that's so powerful. Can you talk us through that and, and your thought process? Yeah, you know, I, I was really lucky. I had some really progressive teachers in high school. I was really awkward in high school um, and middle school, really shy. I never saw myself as a leader, um, wasn't very confident. Um, but in high school, a couple of things. One, I, I started to do community service. And two, I actually started doing Taekwondo, Mm -hmm. which really raised my confidence a lot. Mm -hmm. Eventually got my black belt before I graduated. Um, But three, I had these three really progressive women teachers that came out of the civil rights movement and LGBT movement. And um, they saw that I wanted to do community work. And so they raised me. They took me into youth programs. They sent me to youth conferences. And they believed in me. And they gave me a lot of confidence. Um, and they also gave me a lot of things to read. I mean, in high school, mm-hmm. I was reading Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. Um, and Wow, that's amazing. These teachers just put you under their wing. Yeah, and Louise Erdrich, a Native American novelist, um, Latin American novelist. They exposed me to so many different things. And I feel so fortunate um, to have had adult mentors in my life that pushed me into public service. So with, so with the Pledge of Allegiance, like how oh, did that right. come about? 
<laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, as, as a young person, it was really when you start to learn the history of our nation. Um, and we actually um, are based on these really great ideals that we haven't fully lived up to yet. Right. And um, we're, we're not a country yet um, of equality and justice for all. And in high school, I just felt that it was hard for me to make this pledge um, to a country that hadn't met its ideals yet. But of course, they were the ones that I wanted to work towards. And in many ways, you know, I consider myself the ultimate patriot. I love our country mm -hmm. and our city. And that's why I serve in this capacity, because I want to achieve the best that I can to get to a place of liberty and justice for all. Yeah, it's funny. Um, Ange, Ange has done a lot of traveling to third world countries, and I just kind of started doing that a couple of years ago on a project we were working on. But it was over there where I kind of came back to America and, and kind of like felt like a patriot and kind of questioning everything, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've always questioned, but being there and coming back and, and kind of thinking, how are we making a difference in the world as Americans, like really? Because mm -hmm. we're going to third world countries that have nothing and mm -hmm. no infrastructure or anything. How come we're not helping them as a society? We have everything we could ever want here and more. Mm -hmm. So um, I think questioning the um, Pledge of Allegiance is is a patriotic act. And I know it's yep. it's out there because of Kaepernick and a lot of other mm -hmm. athletes that are paying it or bringing attention to that. But I, I don't know why you're looked down on if you don't believe in the Pledge of Allegiance, per se. Well, one of our most basic rights that we value so much in this country, and is one of the most important rights, is is our First Amendment mm -hmm. um, right to freedom of speech. Mm -hmm. And Kaepernick is, more than anything, using his celebrity mm -hmm. to raise awareness to Black Lives Matters. Which and, more people don't do enough, right? Right. And I think it's great that mm -hmm. he's doing this. I think it's great that young athletes are coming out and saying, this is a problem and we need to actually address it. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to use my celebrity to raise the conversation on a good cause. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he wouldn't have been able to do that if he was standing for the anthem. That's how he was able to raise a national discourse on race um, and community policing. Right. And I love that you say that it makes you more patriotic to question it because mm -hmm. we didn't become a, a country by being part of the herd. We mm -hmm. became a country because people were like, wait, this isn't right. We want religious freedom. We want this. We want that. And that's the foundation of our country. And now people are following that same and, and, and they're being it's, chastised. It's so. often been people at the margins that have fought to make this country more American, right. whether it's mm -hmm. African-Americans, lesbian, gays, transgender, Asian-Americans, Chicano, Latinos, Native Americans. Um, it is those that haven't been afforded the privileges and rights that this country stands for, that had often made America more American by fighting yeah. to extend those rights and privileges to everyone in this country. And that is that is amazing. That's patriotic. That is American. And that's the tradition of which I feel that I come from and that I hope to continue and build upon. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> no. <laughs> I was just thinking, too, so you graduated from Stanford and you chose to stay here mm -hmm. in San Francisco. How come stay here and not go back to New York? Yeah. Why I mean, is New York the West Coast better is what she's asking. <laughs> basically. I, it's okay. Yeah, uh, Don't Jane, worry. Uh, why is the West Coast better than the East Coast? We all know Please why, <laughs> but just tell us. We know the answer. I, I still love New York City, but I do love the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. And as an Asian American... I really, um, really appreciate the opportunities that I have here. 
um, to be able to serve the public. I don't think there's a lot of cities in the country in this country where Asian Americans um, get the opportunity to serve in the capacity that we do on the board of supervisors as mayor um, in the state legislature. And and it is really amazing to watch the Asian Asian American community grow in its political power in San Francisco. When I started volunteering on candidate campaigns back in 2002 and 2003, um, I would often try to get our candidates out to the Asian American community, like the Richmond and the mm-hmm. Sunset and Chinatown. Mm-hmm. Really good progressive people would say to me, we know that's the right thing to do, Jane, but frankly, the votes aren't there. So we need mm-hmm. to go where the people are voting. And it wasn't, you know, people weren't trying to be ignorant or mean or um, unthoughtful, but they were just trying to win elections. And now, um, 10, 13 years later, if you don't have an Asian and Chinese strategy, you know you're not going to win in San Francisco. And that's a pretty extraordinary turnaround. And it's crazy that's in 2016. (laughs) That's a conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. I I was going to say that's how you've won elections is by Mm -hmm. actually going where people hadn't gone. And it wasn't that they weren't interested. It's just that they they felt like they didn't have a spokesman. Mm -hmm. And, And you became that for them, like as an outsider, right? You know, we, we've always believed in the ground game. So I first ran for office in 2004. Mm-hmm. Um, I lost my first race. And, you know, I, I just kind of jumped in feet first. I didn't, I thought I knew a lot about politics, but I really didn't. <laughs> 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 when you run for office, you, you learn a lot. And um, two years later, when I ran again, um, we again ran kind of as an outside candidate. I was a member of the Green Party, right. and I was really mm-hmm. excited to be a part of creating different politics mm-hmm. here in San Francisco. And, and you know, we were fighting for third place. There were three open seats that year. And we were fighting to be in third place. And we came in first place citywide out of 15 candidates. Actually, that year, <laughs> the Chronicle decided to cover about 10 of the 15 candidates running for school board. I didn't make the cut. I was going to say, let me guess, you weren't on that list. I didn't make the cut. And we came in first place. And I remember the Chronicle calling me on election night. And they're like, who are you? Uh, And you didn't answer. I hope you hit hit ignore. (laughs) Okay, maybe that was pre- The Chronicle has continued to not endorse me. I, uh, yeah, doing a little research, I kind of found that. I mean, they mentioned you, but there's no big piece about you. And that's incredible, and I love that. Well, when we ran in 2010 for Board of Supervisors, um, and, you know, I actually re-registered Democrat. Obama won, who I was hugely Mm -hmm. um, supportive of Mm -hmm. and excited Mm -hmm. by. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, this is this opportunity to help change the Democratic Party. But I ran in 2010. I was the only elected official running. um, And we still didn't get any institutional support. We didn't get support of the Chronicle, the Examiner, Mm -hmm. the Guardian, Mm -hmm. the Democratic Party, Labor, Chamber of Commerce, you name it. We didn't get it. But, you know, in many ways, it forced me to become a better candidate. And for us to run a better campaign because we knew we had to meet all the voters ourselves. Mm-hmm. No one was going to get a mailer um, in their in their door saying, you know, Democratic Party endorses Jane Kim. Mm-hmm. So I knew I had to go out and meet all those voters. So we were door knocking two mm-hmm. to three nights a week. Every Saturday and Sunday, I was personally phone banking. We made it our goal to meet more voters than any of the other candidates in the field. And that's how I believe we came in first place. And, you know, honestly, I can say this in retrospect now because we won. It's the right way to win. 
(laughs) (laughs) I I feel like it's the only way to win because otherwise you go, you do some research, whatever, but you can only get so much from that. Like meeting somebody that's so powerful. And I I know not not to bring it back, but uh, you were an advocate for Matt Gonzalez Mm -hmm. in 2003. And Mm -hmm. so was I. I had the t-shirt and I lost (laughs) it. I was looking for it. I wanted to wear it today for you. I still have um, mine. But that was his thing. I met him at Toronado's. We had a beer. You know, it was incredible. And I'll never forget that. And, and Matt ran an amazing campaign. It was that year. amazing, and I was heartbroken. That was, well, I but first I came out of that campaign. Actually, it was Matt that asked me to run for board of education in mm. two thousand and four. I was going to ask, where you is who? he now? He's incredible. That's what yeah. I was asking. He's where at the public defender's office. He's a deputy director, and he's doing really good work at the public defender's office. Well, I where's my shirt? That's all I'm <laughs> anyway, back to you. Um, yeah, and that that's so powerful, and that, and I feel like with social media and things like that, it's kind of reshaping the way politics can be handled, and door to door, and mm-hmm. social media, and things like that, and like people like you can come from the Green Party and and really get elected. I mean, that's that's huge. Well, you know, it's true we do um, use social media a lot in our state senate race, and um, we've been using media in a really different way. And in June, actually, you'll notice my opponent sent out almost nine different pieces of mailers. Oh, by the way, I just got one last week. I forgot to bring it in, but... I only sent one. I only sent one in June. Mm-hmm. And we still came in <clears> first place. <throat> right. Now, we won by 669 votes. Hey, so, they counted. Aaron, thank you for your vote. You're welcome. You're you one were, of those votes. You were out the, three to one. Mm-hmm. You were outspent, we were outspent three to almost one. three to one. Mm-hmm. And, That's incredible. And, um, but we do recognize that... Um, campaigning is changing mm-hmm. and so that's why we decided to take a take a risky bet and not mail so we sent one mailer to voters but we think that um it's changing how yeah. people are voting and making their decisions yeah and people don't want a lot of mail and paper mm-hmm. clutter in their I, mailbox you know last election cycle i got so much mail and i'm like this is not very green of us and everything can be for the most part done electronically mm-hmm. i know a lot of people um can't afford the internet or can't you know maybe only use email at the library or Mm -hmm. at their place of business but I mean at the end of the day it must cost more to do those mailers than just send out emails mailers are expensive which is why we did a lot of media buys Mm -hmm. and a lot of social media buys Mm -hmm. Um, but honestly the one thing that technology hasn't changed changed is that the best way to get votes is to be out on the streets it's pavement pounding it's door knocking it's phone banking Mm -hmm. it's being at the Muni and BART mm-hmm. stops and meeting people one-on-one. Yeah. And so we've been trying to do that. And the one thing I'm really proud of, um, our campaign, is that we are, you know, we're really aggressively hitting the field. Mm-hmm. And we know that the individual vote is so important. Right. I, I have one more thing to say about a mailer that I got recently last week. <laughs> well, the thing is, it, it's money spent, but it was a very negative campaign towards you. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that hmm. says a lot about your opponent, because why not just send a mailer out about what that person's going to do if he got elected? Instead, right. it's a negative black and white campaign about you. And I. Uh, well, <laughs> that's the people's pledge, which right. we wanted to talk to <clears throat> right. you My about. My opponent made it clear in June that he was going to run a negative campaign. Mm-hmm. And, and we've decided, regardless, that we're going to continue to run a positive campaign. We want people to vote for me because of the work I've done mm-hmm. and the work that they that voters believe that I will continue to do based on my track record, not based on slamming. Um, Mm -hmm. our opponent and frankly there's just too much of that in politics I don't believe in winning because I took someone down right I feel like that's what pushes people away from politics Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, the mud slinging. Yeah. yeah. It's like I disagree with my opponent. I disagree with a lot of the money and support that he's been getting. Mm-hmm. But I recognize that he's a hard worker and this isn't an easy job being right. in public service. Mm-hmm. And so I respect his commitment um, to wanting to serve in that capacity. Um, but I do think it's really important for voters to look at, you know, who's supporting each of the candidates. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And my opponent has gotten almost a half a million dollars from landlords and realtors, mm-hmm. um, the variance groups that have been fighting LSACT reform, mm-hmm. which has, you know, one of the biggest number one causes of evictions here in San Francisco, primarily mm-hmm. with seniors, immigrants who speak English as a second language mm-hmm. and individuals with disabilities. Um, the very laws that are helping to push out everyday <clears throat> residents here in San Francisco. And, you know, the family that spent over a million dollars to abolish state rent control in California mm-hmm. has maxed out his campaign. And he may say that he doesn't agree with all of his supporters, but his supporters have definitely decided who will best represent their interests. And right. He's, and he's still taking that money. Which is why we um, <clears throat> why we challenge him to do the Elizabeth Warren pledge. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. We know that there's a lot of IE money. And, you know, he and I have both publicly stated that we're against Citizens United. Well, we can't get the Supreme Court to overturn their decision today. So I think it's actually incumbent upon candidates to say that we reject IE. You know, my opponent will say that PG&E gave money to a labor IE that came out for me in the last couple of days of the elections. Well, I say I don't want the IE money either, right? We should take out all of the independent independent expenditures and tell our supporters, hey, if you give us money, we're going to match that out of our campaign funds and give that to a charitable contribution. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you're even thinking about giving us $100,000, $300,000 in IE, that's going to take money out of our accounts to go to a charitable institution. That is the way to take out money from the elections. And I was committed to making that pledge. I was hoping that my opponent um, would agree to it. He and scoffed I think at it. He scoffed at it. But, you know, yeah. really, if every candidate started saying, started making that pledge, we can take out all of this independent money um, out of out of our races without a change in the Supreme Court decision. Mm. You're not giving the chance of uh, people make their deci- making their decision on a race based on a third party's say. Right. It's like, no, here's what I stand for. Here's what I here's what he stands for. It's you ex- choose. It's extraordinary. It's just, it's just noise. Yeah. Right? It's, it's extraordinary the amount of money that comes into these races. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Extraordinary. Well, well, I feel like on that note, I'd like to talk about some of the things that you've accomplished as supervisor of District mm-hmm. Six, which is Arguably one of the most difficult districts in our city. I mean, you are basically <clears throat> representing anywhere from, uh, you, know, you know, the the rich Soma condo mm-hmm. owners to the single occupancy tenderloin been there for decades. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you even begin to understand the needs of both ends of the spectrum? Mm-hmm. So I, I represent the poorest residents of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And I also now represent, as of a year and a half ago, the wealthiest zip code of San Francisco. I moved from Pack Heights down to South of Market. And I represent the vast majority of tech companies that have made San Francisco their home. Mm -hmm. And I still represent um, a lot of working class, middle class, Latino, and Filipino families in the South of Market as well. You know, when I started running in 2010, everyone told me that I was going to need two or three different platforms to win. But we and, um, And my campaign manager at the time even said, that it felt like whiplash because one morning we'd be at the St. Anthony's breakfast mm-hmm. food line and the next morning we'd be at Blue Bottle, Four Barrel, right. coffee line so trying to get crazy. the vote. Right. But, you know, I have to say that in going door to door, what I actually discovered is that 
you know, people all want the same things. Everyone wants better schools in their neighborhoods. Everyone wants the streets to be safer when they're walking down. And mm-hmm. actually, everyone wants affordable housing. And when I realized that, we actually ended up only having one platform, which was that we were committed to making our district safer, healthier, and stronger. Mm-hmm. That when we mm-hmm. left office, that we want to leave the district healthier, safer, and stronger than when we came into office. And I took on issues that I thought would really knit the district together. And one of the issues was actually pedestrian safety. It seemed like a milquetoast issue, but the reason why I took it on was because um, South American Tenderloin has had the highest rate of fatalities and injuries from vehicle collisions. Mm-hmm. In fact, in San Francisco, mm-hmm. more people get killed by cars than by guns. Mm-hmm. And this was an issue that was impacting Tenderloin, 6th Street, SRO tenants, the same way it was impacting condo homeowners in South Beach and Rincon Hill. And actually, one thing that is very different about San Francisco is that usually um, we place poor communities near the freeway. Here in San Francisco, we've actually put very wealthy and middle-class communities by Mm -hmm. the 80, 101, and the 280. Mm -hmm. And so they're being impacted in the same way um, by car vehicular pedestrian collisions as our poor communities were. And so in 2011, it was the first hearing I called for. And then over the last six years, we've been convening a monthly pedestrian safety committee meeting of our SRO tenants in the Tenderloin, Filipino Latino families in in the South of Market, and our condo homeowners in South Beach and Rincon Hill. And we've been trying to build community. You know, this is our district, and we need to build it together. And we have a lot more in common than we don't. Mm-hmm. And it's been a great community organizing um, issue. And and now, you know, when I, you know, just the other day, we had a gun buyback at United Players by my oh, house, which is where I live. Know, we know about United and Players. And I saw some mm-hmm. of our South Beach condo homeowners volunteering at the gun buyback that are pedo- part of our pedestrian safety work group. And that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that is really that's nice. That's what I love about San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Everything's in your face, you know, yeah. whether you're you're affluent or not, like every other block is one or the other. So you're faced with it, whether mm-hmm. you like it or not. And you should care. And I always say to folks that actually this work isn't altruistic. It's actually very selfish because I am safer. I'm happier when my neighbors have homes, when my neighbor's children have after school programs to go to. You know, we are actually all better off when those who have the least are taken care of. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes, voting, yes. (laughs) Sorry, yes, uh, let me fill out my ballot now. (laughs) Well, I wanted to bring up, because we've talked about, actually prior on on Bitch Talk, we've talked about like the Uh issues with Super Bowl City (gasps) and Mm -hmm. the whole debacle that that became. And you're a huge advocate of like dealing with the homeless problem head on. And it's something that people just like want to shove under the, the the carpet. So can you just like explain the issues with Super Bowl City and, and everything that you've been doing to try to try to fight that from never happening again? You know, so the Super Bowl was really just symbolic of the larger issue that mm-hmm. San Francisco is <laughs> facing. Right. And which is that people are starting to wonder if this is their city anymore. And I think residents are overwhelmingly <laughs> feel like feeling like you know, re-roll over backwards for any major wealthy corporation to do Mm -hmm. whatever they want in San Francisco. And by the way, we want our businesses and developers to do well in San Francisco. We want them to have healthy and strong businesses in San Francisco, but we don't want them to run San Francisco. There's a big distinction between supporting our employee and Mm -hmm. corporate um, institutions in San Francisco and letting them run the city. And that was a feeling around the Super Bowl. No oversight 
completely free. <laughs> we didn't, we did hardly any kind of reimbursement process, unlike Santa Clara that got mm-hmm. reimbursed for every single dollar that special event um, costed them. And we're talking about an institution whose CEO made, you know, $44 million one year, mm-hmm. right? I mean, he could have paid for the Super Bowl events here in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So it's not that we didn't want Super Bowl to have their parties in San Francisco. We just wanted them to pay for it mm-hmm. because general fund dollars, those are public taxpayer dollars. They're our investment back to our city. Mm-hmm. And some people might say this is a good investment of taxpayer dollars. I just disagreed with that position because our budget, it is a representation of our values and our priorities. And we need to fund our schools. Mm-hmm. We need to lower classroom sizes. We need to pay our teachers. We need to build affordable housing. Um, we need to house our homeless. Those are our priorities. And that is truly how we should be investing back in our city, not investing in a party for the wealthiest. It, it was a it, spit in the face. And it was embarrassing. I felt it was embarrassing as a resident of San Francisco for 10 years and I'm born and raised in the Bay Area. And it was like, we have these glaring issues in our city. And yet, you know, we're going to clean it up for a couple weeks and kind of put on a show for everyone else. And, mm-hmm. Oh, no, we're fine. There's there's no issues here. And in, in fact, all these people are coming here to party here, mm-hmm. um, but kind of leave a mess behind. And I wasn't sure. I was kind of checking the numbers here and there to see how much money San Francisco made. But it really wasn't much to what we spent on hosting it here. Right. And I have to say, even if we make money from that investment, I still don't think it's an appropriate use of taxpayer mm-hmm. dollars Absolutely. on parties for yeah. the wealthiest. Correct. I think they can certainly pay for their parties. And and, and the just, homeless were just pushed into a corner. Right. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. on on the Embarcadero, there's always these sets of, of um, you know, artisans and people that sell their yeah. art. Right. They were all pushed out. They couldn't even sell their art to the people yeah. that were coming in. Right. They wanted only the people who they approved to mm-hmm. sell right. things. It was just disgusting. It was really sad. Yeah. Well, we, we have legislation now. It took a long time to write where we're going to make sure that there are actual mechanisms that force any type of special event like that to come up with a feasibility study and reimbursement schedule ahead of time. And and that's what just happened this time. There was just no such agreement, and we're just going to make sure that doesn't happen again. Something Mm -hmm. like that, is it also geared towards, you know, maybe all of the buyouts of San Francisco as well when those happen a few times a year, like an Oracle World or a Salesforce just I'm throwing it out there. Mm-hmm. You know, are, will they be kind of put under the microscope as well? Yeah. So our legislation is going to catch multi-day um, mm-hmm. events that take up city blocks and streets and ask them to do a fiscal feasibility study and the actual cost of the events. That's fantastic. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> it's yeah. an impact. I mean, isn't that shouldn't that be inherent? <laughs> Doesn't that just make sense? But that's politics, I guess. Well, we'll be actually bringing, uh, we've we've introduced legislation and we'll be coming to the full board in October. Can we sit in on those events? Absolutely. <laughs> can we if record we live whiskey, from there? Can we get a front seat? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you know, I think what has really been disheartening is seeing our city become wealthier and also to see our homeless count grow at the same time. I had a question about that. And our culture being lost. Yeah. Anyway, go on. No, no, but homelessness in the city has kind of always been there, especially just growing up here. It's always been there. You know, my dad was born and raised San Franciscan in Chinatown, and he moved out of the city um, in the 70s, I would say. But we'd always come here to visit family or whatever. And I remember seeing homeless people, but not at the rate it is now. I mean... It's so sad to walk through BART stations and seeing the same homeless people 
that that's their home. Mm-hmm. And I always wonder, you know, for the new people that are moving in here, you know, do they want to help or how can they help? Or, you know, are the supervisors, mayor, are they trying to figure out what to do? Because it feels like it's a startling rate, really, at this point. What we're seeing is a widening income gap, which our own human services agency, our own human services agency says is akin to countries like Rwanda. Um, This is according to our own data. Mm -hmm. And um, while the homeless count has grown, it hasn't actually grown by as much as people may think. Hmm. Uh, What we're seeing is unprecedented amounts of development in areas that people used to hide and be invisible in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And now they're getting pushed out into the neighborhoods. So now they're more visible. Yeah. But we are also seeing an increasing homeless count. I mean, not to the extent that people think, um, but we're seeing people evicted and really ending up on our streets. It's not a made-up story. I uh, met a senior Latina woman a year ago at our new navigation center, and I asked her how she got there, and she said she had lived in the mission her whole life, and she got evicted, and she had nowhere else to go. She had no safety net. She had no family, and so she ended up on our streets for months in the mission before she um, was discovered by the navigation center. But I think one of the Uh, most tragic parts of the growth in our homeless count is that the fastest growing demographic in our homeless count in San Francisco and LA and New York and other major cities around the country is actually families. It's single mothers with children with jobs. They are the fastest growing segment of the homeless count today. And they are the invisible side of homelessness that people don't see. They're trying to couch surf. They're sleeping in cars. They're sleeping in churches. I meet mothers who bathe their toddlers in their church's sink Um, because they don't have access to showers and bathrooms. And we have a tremendous amount of work to do. We have enough homeless children in SFUC to fill 75 classrooms. Oh, my God. And and we know that if you're homeless as a child, you're many times more likely to become homeless as an adult. Mm -hmm. What's so interesting about homelessness is that I think we forget, but homelessness wasn't always an urban phenomenon. Um, it really began in the mid-1980s, and it happened to dovetail wow. with when then-President <clears throat> Reagan started Reagan. slashing right. mm-hmm. funding to HUD. By close to 50%, over three administrations, we started slashing funding to public housing. In the 60s and 70s, we used to have more units on public housing than people on the wait list. We actually had vacant public housing units. And so when you became homeless back in the day, we used to be able to house you fairly rapidly. Um, since the 80s, when we started, we stopped funding housing and affordable housing. Suddenly, homelessness became an urban phenomenon across the country. This is a federal and national issue, and it's definitely a state issue. Over mm-hmm. 20% of the nation's homeless count is in the state of California. And I don't think that San Francisco can solve it on its own. And one of the things that I'm absolutely committed to in Sacramento is that we start dealing with homelessness as a statewide issue, mm-hmm. that we start investing in it. Um, that we also start investing in mental health because homelessness mm-hmm. is also a public health issue. It is yeah. not simply an economic issue. Right. I actually stayed in one of our homeless shelters to see what that experience would be like. Um, wow. Actually, the first night I was named acting mayor, <laughs> I stayed at a homeless shelter. I went through the wow. reservation system. And as mayor on my first night, I just I stayed at next door shelter in the Tenderloin. And I learned a lot that night. Mm-hmm. Uh, folks in our shelter system are far older and far sicker than I realized. Um, and we don't have any services that actually meet the demographic of those that are staying in the shelters. The shelters were made for people like me, able-bodied, young, down on their luck, needs a place to stay while they find a job. But that's not the demographic that's in our shelters. So if we know the people in our shelters are sicker, 
and older, then we should change our shelter to actually address the population that's coming in. And so I fought after that to get nurses in our shelter. And we now have six full-time nurses and health professionals in our shelters. Mm -hmm. Um, And I fought last year and I won a 24-hour medical respite shelter that we're opening in in January. And it's going to be a shelter just like our other shelters, but instead of being run by minimum wage staff members, they're going to be run by nurses, clinicians, and psychologists. So the sickest people on our streets have a place to go. In fact, if you are really sick, we kick you out of our shelter because we know that we don't we don't have the resources Mm -hmm. to take care of you and we don't want to be liable right um i know right this always happens we have like 30 we have 25 more more questions questions. (laughs) we have five minutes guys sorry we're and we're gonna we're gonna cry about it right now um i could talk a lot about the mental health issues in in america and we're not addressing Beyond. mental health, not just for our poorest, right. but for any of our in communities. General, right. It has become a national problem, mm-hmm. and we need to figure out how to better address and, and invest in this issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, since we have five minutes, so <laughs> I'm like, where do we go now? Yeah. I mean, actually, yeah. maybe explain the 40% affordable housing con- contract you helped facilitate at Mission Rock. Yeah, sure. Which was huge. Since, yeah. And you are such a beacon for affordable housing in the city, which is exactly what we need, which is why San Franciscans need to vote for you. Go right. On. Thank you. <laughs> well, I, I'm really proud that I have fought for and built more affordable housing than any member of this current board of supervisors. Mm-hmm. And um, I have to tell you, I think I learned it from my Korean mom. <laughs> go mom no seriously she was a fierce negotiator I used to go to stores with her embarrassed because <laughs> she always wanted the discount oh well exactly she always wanted them about. to take off the sales tax exactly Part of, and, and she was shameless in asking even if they said no she kept asking again and again and there'd be a huge line of people behind us and I was so embarrassed to be there course, with my mom of course but I've actually learned that that's that's the way you fight for your city and so with the Giants at the time, mm-hmm. they had a proposal to build on public land and they wanted to go to the voters to get an approval. And I said, if you want to build on the last and largest public land that's vacant, then we expect you to build more. We have higher expectations. And so over the course of many days, um, you know, with the community, with labor at our side, we were able to negotiate a deal where we want an unprecedented 40% affordable middle-income housing mm-hmm. on site. And this is a thousand unit plus um, development. So we're talking about at least 400 units mm-hmm. that are going to come wow. online that's affordable yeah. for the concessionary workers at the ballpark and right. teachers and nurses. So ranging from households of four that make between 55 and and $150,000 a year, which I is qualify. crazy. Which is crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, that's you know, a huge we, gap. we are now yeah. fighting for housing for people that the market should be taking care of. We are now fighting for middle class housing. I just never thought, and I don't know if you have this thought ever, but you know, you go to school, you get your education, you get your degree, and then you qualify for public housing in the city if that you, you live in. If you <laughs> make I mean, if you make under eighty four thousand five hundred fifty dollars a year, you qualify for affordable housing under federal HUD guidelines here in San Francisco. That is how expensive housing has become. And when people talk about, well, we just need to build as much market rate housing as possible. This is what market rate housing is, because people, I think, don't often understand it. The average developer, and we're not talking luxury, we're talking about Four Seasons and St. Regis. The average market rate rental that is being built today is being built for a family of four that makes $270,000 a year. That's what market rate is. <laughs> and so for me, what? we can't make San Francisco more affordable by building as much market rate housing Mm-mm. as possible. We need to build as much affordable and middle income housing as possible. And we have to fight for it. 
It's just the the market's not going to take care of us. We have to fight for it. Well, you know, I don't know how you fight for it, but I'll help you. <laughs> because right? and I, I just I, I hear you and I think it's it's great that you're fighting for it. I just don't even know where you start because I feel now we're just in such a avalanche. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. It's a snowball All of our effect. Our favorite places are closing. <laughs> everything's yeah. everything's you know, closing and we and, can't catch and, up i mean that's not even as important as people losing their homes but right. it's like all of the above everything beautiful but, about know, san francisco but here's the beauty still though thousands of tenants are still fighting their evictions in san francisco today mm-hmm. hundreds of small businesses are fighting their rents getting doubled and tripled today and i think it's really important for all of us to stand together with them and the final thing that i just want to mention you know the other piece that's really important to me is education And, you know, we have been looking at, well, the luxury market has been growing in San Francisco. So how do we kind of um, help make that more efficient? So we were looking at a number of different taxes on luxury homes. And we finally fell upon a luxury real estate transfer tax, which we proposed um, back in December. And it's a luxury tax on buildings, uh, sales of buildings and homes of $5 million and above. Mm -hmm. And we ran the numbers with our controller's office, and it's going to generate $44 million a year for the city. And we thought about, well, mm-hmm. how can we help make San Francisco more affordable? Mm-hmm. Let's ask those at the top to give a little bit more to make San Francisco more affordable. And, you know, after conversations with multiple folks, you know, the first being, well, let's fund more affordable housing. Um, you know, we were approached by Labor Council and AFT 2121. And Bernie Sanders was talking about making higher education free again. And they said, why don't we make community college free? Mm-hmm. And we were excited about the notion, but we thought, wow, that's too big. But then we looked at the numbers, and if we made City College of San Francisco free today for our residents, it would only cost $12.9 million. And so we got really excited, and that's why we have Proposition W on the ballot Mm -hmm. on November 8th. And it is a luxury housing tax that is going to make community college free for every single San Francisco resident. And if we pass in November, which, by the way, I'm confident we am. It's polling better than I am. (laughs) (laughs) We are going to be the first city in the nation to make community college free again for all of our residents. So it's beyond campaign rhetoric. We're actually going to make it happen. Mm -hmm. And the average job available to a city college um, graduate with an associate's degree is on average $11,000 more than for the same individual with just a high school diploma. So we're saying let's not just make housing affordable. Let's actually put more money in the pockets of our everyday residents. We know that community college has been the institution that allows people to rise to the middle class. So let's actually make it free again. Mm-hmm. And and that's part of the work that I want to take to Sacramento. And I'll impart these last words to, to the listeners. Sacramento passes two to three times as many bills as Washington, D.C. Wow. It is one of the most relevant policymaking, mm-hmm. lawmaking bodies in the country. And one of the most important things that Sacramento does is education. of our budget is K through 12 community college. And yet Sacramento doesn't spend 40% of its time on making public education great. In fact, over the last 30 years, there's only two line items that have changed significantly in California state budget, right? The budget being a statement of our values and priorities. Mm -hmm. One, you can probably guess, is prison spending. It went up from 3% of our budget to 9%. (sighs) Only one other line item changed in the last 30 Mm -hmm. years. And that was our spending on higher education, specifically Cal State University and UC. It went from 18% to 12% of our state budget, exactly 6% percentage mm-hmm. points. So when people talk about the school-to-prison pipeline, mm-hmm. it's real. 
The California legislature wow. has decided which institution it is investing for young Californians to end up in. We built 23 state prisons in the last 30 years and only one UC and three CSUs. Mm-hmm. And we are raising the fees it's at disgusting. community college, CSU, UC level. In fact, 30 years ago, we covered, if you went to UC Berkeley, we covered 81% of your tuition. Mm-hmm. Today, we cover 37%. We have to reverse this trend. In fact, our prison system is not only becoming the answer to our higher education system, Mm -hmm. it is becoming the answer to poverty, homelessness, Mm -hmm. mental health, Mm -hmm. substance abuse. In LA County alone, the largest provider of mental health services is LA County Jail. And that is becoming increasingly true in San Francisco as well. Mm -hmm. And we just have to flip that dialogue, right? Prisons are the easy answer, Mm -hmm. and that's not why I'm running. I'm not running to give voters the easy answer. We need to actually make our communities safer and stronger, but we have to do it the hard way. Mm -hmm. And so that's part of the work, and that's why I'm running. It's a lot of work, Jane Kim, but final question, Strangely or Swollen Faces? <laughs> which is which is your favorite you band and why? You didn't know oh that we knew. God. We do homework. You didn't know that we knew. <laughs> this is a bass player we are in the presence yeah. of, of two bands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I have. You can explain if you'd like. <laughs> so Strangely was the all-women band that I was a part of. We used to play at Brainwash mm-hmm. and Somarts and Bindlestiff. We weren't very good, by the way. Though. I'm sure my bandmates don't want to hear me say that. I wasn't very good. I'll just put it that I wasn't a very good bass player. But um, we had a side gig, um, me and the drummer, because we were both Korean-American women. We also had a Korean um, jam band that met every Friday oh night God. and yes. drank makgeolli and Maker's oh Mark. Oh. I can't even deal with this. She <laughs> wants to sit in with her ukulele. Go and, on, and we called ourselves the Swollen Faces. Yes. If, if you are Korean-American, you understand where that name came from. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> I mean, I just saying, the more I learn about you, I mean, this woman likes single batch malt whiskey. Right. Lagavulin, to be right. specific. <laughs> I am a big Lagavulin fan. <laughs> okay, so you're more the Ron Swanson or the uh, Leslie Nope of your... <laughs> oh, gosh. I'm probably more Leslie Nope. You know, okay. I, have to, I have to say, you know, this job is really hard. It's it's heartbreaking actually on many days and and I lose I would a lot. Think so. I lose a lot, um, but we also win, and um, and when you win, uh, you just have hope. And I've never stopped hoping that um, we can't make a difference, because otherwise there's no point in continuing on this work. Mm-hmm. And so I would say that I'm more Leslie Nope. <laughs> Good. Wow, that's well, amazing. Well, we love Leslie. So. I know. I and love, we love both Jane Kim. Equally. I love that there's a show about my work, actually. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Who wants to do a show on local government and how it works? But I relate to it. And it did really well. So well, people love that show. But Especially in the presidential race and the circus that that's become, it's become so apparent that like we really need to invest in mm-hmm. our local mm-hmm. politicians and and really figure out who's for our best interests. So I mean, I, I will say this again about state politics and local politics. Um, we're not going to win back Congress if we don't win back state legislatures mm-hmm. across the country because it's the state legislature that sets um, the district lines. And Republicans control most of the state governments across the country, and they gerrymandered districts to ensure that Congress could never become Democratic again. And so um, it is upon liberals and Democrats to invest in their state and local parties. And by the way, it is state legislatures that are making the changes in the everyday lives of residents. It's Nebraska that overturned the death penalty. Right. 
and the states that are working on prison reform on K through 12, you know, it was only three, it was only, I'm sorry, it was only five years ago that California state legislature, by the way, um, this was introduced by a woman legislature, that banned um, shackling women giving birth in prison. It was only five years no. ago. And California is in the minority of states that have banned shackling women. By the way, that doesn't mean we don't shackle women during pregnancy and after birth. We just restrict it during actual birth giving. During, during birth. And, and so we have a lot of work to do. And all of wow. these laws okay. are happening at the state level. Mm-hmm. In fact, single-payer universal health care, I believe, is going to happen at the state level first. And so it is incredibly important what happens in our state capitals. Right. Jane, I got to cut it short. We're done. Thank you for having me. But I just, I'm, thank you so much for being on Bitch Talk. I just wanted our listeners to know that politicians, you can talk to them. They're people too. And I really appreciate you being on our podcast. So you were, it was such an honor and you're an inspiration to me. And mm-hmm. it, thank you. Maybe we're going to start, I will probably start phone banking for you this weekend. Um, Bernie is for Jane Kim. <laughs> she is one of eight we, state legislatures that he's backing. Right. It's huge. We, we only won being outspent almost three to one because of our volunteers so we do need people to come out and phone bank and precinct walk with us oh. every single day i'm on that email chain can we so drink worry. whiskey and ride bikes and Absolutely. hang out together afterwards <laughs> you play the bass i'll play ukulele i'm in jane thank you so much for being thank here you. we're gonna vote for you and that's on november 8th correct thank you for having me yeah i'm in all in see jane run